Well, there, you could get my job. That was really good. Guys, it's so good um, to be with you this morning and to really just um, sense what God is doing here, to know that God is in the house. and to, It's been a real privilege just to worship you, with you. I've been blessed this morning and I do feel God's answering David's prayer from the beginning about rest and refreshment because like so many of you, life has been busy recently and I feel refreshed just um, worshipping with you um, this morning. We're going to uh, look at a short chapter of the Bible, just 71 verses. Uh, we might be finished by we might be finished by mid-December, by which point the election will be over, thankfully. Uh, David, what do I do to make that work? Just the top one or Okay. Um, and so by that stage, we'll be no more um, having to watch politicians pretending to be ordinary people who live outside London and who um, travel by bus and who eat cheese and onion crisps. <laughs> he gives a whole new meaning to Mr. Tato, doesn't he? <laughs> whatever, you, whatever you think about Boris uh, and his politics, when a person's hair and their untucked shirt and their kind of bumbling style of delivery goes viral on a daily basis, you know they're a person of influence. Uh, Time magazine very recently published its list of the most influential people of 2019. And there's a guy on that list called Blevins, Richard Tyler Blevins. He calls himself Ninja. And he's an American Twitch streamer, whatever that is, <laughs> a gamer and a YouTuber. And he has 22 million followers on YouTube and made $12 million last year. If only I had enough hair to dye green. <laughs> but for, for the millennium edition of its list, Time magazine put someone else completely on the cover and the journalist Reynolds Price wrote this. It would take exotic calculation to deny that the most influential figure, not merely in these two millennia, but in all of human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. Even the date of this day is based on the calculation of the date of his birth. It's the 10th of November 2019 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord, so 2019 years after Christ. So I suppose what I want us to think about this morning is what is it that makes Jesus of Nazareth so influential? So influential that a Yugoslavian nun would devote her life to um, comfort the dying of Calcutta in his name. So influential that the world's most incredible architecture and art and music was created in his name. So influential that people of every tribe and language and nation claim they have been rescued, forgiven, healed and set free in his name. Well, I think we find the answer more than anywhere else in John's Gospel. Ma I'm sure you know this because you have a great teacher in David. Matthew, Mark and Luke are sometimes called the Synoptic Gospels because each presents Jesus in roughly the same format. So together they provide a synopsis, a summary of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. John shifts our attention to who Jesus is. He ignores some of the more obvious things like Jesus' birth and his baptism, his temptation, and he focuses instead on seven miracles of Jesus, seven signs that point us 
to who Jesus is. And six of those miracles are not mentioned in the other three Gospels. So today we're going to have a look through John chapter 6. Unlike the other Gospels, we know exactly why John's was written. Because he tells us himself. But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Out of all the memories he has of doing life with Jesus, John has chosen these ones to share these ones for a very specific purpose. So that we might believe who Jesus is and that by believing that we will discover life, eternal life. Now don't worry, we're not going to go word by word, line by line through 71 verses of John 6. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm a, I'm a really big fan of the exegetical sermon because it decreases the risk of words being taken out of context. And my, we are experts at that in Northern Ireland. Um, but sometimes there is merit in this wider view and just standing back a bit and looking at the big picture. And I think in this case, hovering over, over this whole chapter just reveals a pattern, a series of contrasts that may help us to experience some of the signs and wonders in our own generation. Um, before I just delve into it, I want to say David invited me to speak here in Tandragee after hearing me at a con- uh, taking part in a conference at Emmanuel earlier this year. And in some ways, I'm picking up here where I left off there. Anyone who was at that conference heard Alan Emerson ask me the question, how I felt the church should posture itself in Ireland in this generation. And I'm going to take a moment just to recap that because before... Um, We delve into these verses. I think it's important. You see, if I had studied this chapter before that conference, my answer to that question would have been that we should posture ourselves as Jesus does in John chapter 6. The the author, the New York author and pastor Tim Keller says the church is still coming to terms with the fact that it's no longer holding sway in society. And it therefore hasn't, hasn't developed good counter-narratives. Well, you know, far be it from me to disagree with Tim Keller, but I do. Because I think the, the counter-narratives are there. The cultural narrative is pride right now. I'm right, you're wrong. So the counter-narrative has to be humility. The cultural narrative is division. If you don't agree with me, you're my enemy. So the counter-narrative has to be coexistence. And the cultural narrative is kind of entrenchment in the ditches. Don't dare ask me to change my mind. So the counter-narrative has to be a willingness to engage with other ideas and other concepts. To put it as simply as possible, on both sides of the Atlantic, society has climbed into boxes. You're in the Trump box or you're not. You're in the Brexit box or you're not. You're in the Boris box or you're not. You're in the British box or you're in the Irish box. Well, dare you try and be in both. If if we learn nothing else from these verses this morning, I hope we will learn this. Jesus isn't found in any box. He couldn't be more out of the box. Three times in John 6, we find a much more paradoxical Jesus. Firstly, Jesus is both man and God. He's not man or God. He is both man and God. 
Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. He sat down. Why? Because he's absolutely exhausted. It might not be obvious at first, but when you read these verses in context, we learn so much about the humanity of Jesus. When we last hear of Jesus in chapter 5, he's in Jerusalem. Now he is miles away on the far shore of Galilee. When we last hear of Jesus, there's a Jewish festival taking place. It has to be the Feast of Tabernacles or Passover, and now Passover is imminent again. So he's covered an enormous amount of ground and has been on the road ministering for at least six months and possibly even a year. So he's physically exhausted and he's emotionally exhausted because the King Herod has just beheaded John the Baptist. It's hardly surprising that Jesus climbed this mountain and sat down hoping for five minutes peace, some time to process those events. In John's gospel alone, he sits down at a well because he's thirsty. He sits down on a mountain because he's exhausted. He weeps at the grave of his friend Lazarus because he's sad. He admits that his soul is troubled, that he's anxious about the cross. But we shouldn't really be surprised. Think back to the very first chapter. The word became what? Flesh and made his dwelling among us. God became human and pitched his tent on planet Earth. Whatever human trouble we're dealing with, you see, he understands it. There's no doubting the humanity of Jesus, but he will not be confined to that box. You know what happens next? There are 5,000 men to be fed, not counting women and children. An estimated 20 to 25,000 people. So Andrew finds a boy with five barley crackers, that's the literal translation, and two sardines. We're about to witness the largest scale miracle in the Bible. The only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, and it has got to be the most understated event in all of history. Just two sentences. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. End of story. It's amazing, isn't it? It's two sentences. There are miracles of transformation, turning water into wine, miracles of restoration, restoring sight, hearing, mobility. But this was a miracle of creation. He literally created something out of nothing. Only God can do that. So he's not just a man. He fed 500, more than that, at least 500 times the number of people sitting in this room with so little fuss. It's recorded in two sentences of the Bible. Barley that had never been in the ground. Fish that had never swum in the sea. Forget your five-star Michelin dining experience. I reckon these people were still telling their grandchildren decades later about the finest meal they had ever eaten on the side of a mountain. It would be so easy for us to criticise these people for wanting Jesus for the wrong reasons because that becomes really clear in this passage. But let's be honest. If we met a man who could sort out all our aches and pains, turn our water into wine, feed us and all our mates with a McDonald's Happy Meal and have enough left over for 12 KFC bargain buckets, we'd want to hang out with them too. You've got to be honest about that. 
But, but unlike most men, he isn't interested in popularity or power. When they want to stage a coup and to make him king, he disappears. Because he's not just a man, he's God. What an amazing paradox in just a few verses. Before we move on, let me ask you a question. Would you have handed Jesus your lunch that day? Would I? We're so much better at giving Jesus our sin than we are at giving him our stuff. If David Spence preached a sermon on stewardship as often as the Bible referenced the issue, you'd hear a sermon on it once a month. That's something to think about. If that wee boy hadn't handed over his lunch, the people wouldn't have eaten. And this is my favorite part. He would never have had an opportunity to participate in a miracle. If we want to see signs and wonders, we have to be willing to give Jesus our stuff. I've told this story so many times, I've lost count, but I'm gonna tell it again this morning. Martha was a friend of my mother. Nigel will remember her well. She's with Jesus now. At the beginning of the last century, her mother opened her door in Belfast to find a wee boy standing barefoot in the snow, selling firewood. She brought him in, gave him sixpence for some firewood and lit the fire to warm the child up. But when he'd gone, she realized the scrap of paper she'd lit the fire with was the envelope containing their rent for that week, two pounds and 10 shillings. When, uh, when her daughter Martha came home from work, they prayed about this dilemma because they really were a very poor family. And that night the door knocked again and a nurse who'd been on mission in China had stopped on her way home and needed a bed for the night. Before leaving the next morning, she said God had told her to give them an envelope. Guess how much was inside? Two pounds, ten shillings, and sixpence. The rent and the sixpence they'd spent buying wood from a child in need on their doorstep. Do we want to see heaven touching earth? Then we need to give Jesus what we have. Because Jesus is both man and God. And then secondly, I love this part, Jesus is both radical and conservative. When evening came, the disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. He speaks to them briefly, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. You what now? Yes, you read that correctly. The boat was teleported through time and space. The other Gospels give us far more detail about this event. Mark tells us Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Why? He must have known they were going to sail into a storm. We need to think about that the next time we're going through a storm of any kind. He was clearly testing their faith, just the way he had tested Philip's faith earlier by asking him where they were going to buy food for all these people when he had already decided to do the miracle. This wasn't one miracle, it was six 
He walked on the water. Peter walked on the water. Peter began sinking and walked on the water again. Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus stilled the sea. Jesus transported them to their destination in a heartbeat. This is off the chart in terms of miracles. I have a friend who posts stunning pictures of Loch Ness every morning, but I've never seen one with a man walking on it. (laughs) And they were frightened. Has got to be up there with the understatements of the century. These are radical events. But Jesus won't be confined to that box. Flick back to verse 20 when he spoke to them. But he said to them, it is I Don't be afraid. The literal translation is, don't be afraid, I am. Sound familiar? He uses the four letters that make up the Hebrew verb to be, the name Yahweh, the Lord. The only thing radical now is the fact that he is applying that name to himself. Because that name couldn't be more conservative. He might be doing radical things like feeding thousands of people from nothing and walking on water, but his theology comes straight from the Old Testament. The I am language of Genesis, Exodus and Isaiah. You see, Jesus gives us the best of both worlds and this is what we lose when we confine him to a box. John has mentioned the Passover earlier in the passage to keep us grounded in history. Remember when God called Moses I am who I am. Tell the people, I am has sent you. The Passover, the deliverance of the children of Israel is written all over this chapter. Miraculous bread, like manna from heaven in the wilderness. Salvation from the sea, like the parting of the Red Sea. Twice Jesus retreats to the mountain, not just a mountain, but the mountain, another throwback to Moses. He's pointing us to one greater than Moses. He's pointing us to himself. It's an echo of the encounter with the woman at the well, just two chapters earlier. He couldn't be more radical, daring to speak to a Samaritan. Daring to speak to a woman, daring to speak to a woman who had five and a half husbands. But the entire conversation with that woman is grounded in the Old Testament. The late um, John Stott, a theologian if ever there was one, used to say we need more radical conservatives. People who are prepared to be radical when it comes to engaging with the world in our generation. But conservative when it comes to the message of the word. People who are not confined to a box. Again, before we move on, I'm going to ask another question. Would you and I have let Jesus on the boat? That might sound like a daft question. But verse 21 tells us that the disciples had to be willing to let him on the boat. Why would anyone think twice about that? Well, because there's one thing more life-changing than having a storm outside your boat. And that is having God inside your boat. If we want to see signs and wonders in our generation, we must be willing to let God into the boat. He won't force his way in. Some of us can be a bit reluctant to do that. Probably in a church like this, that's not so much an issue. But it can be for some of us who grew up in conservative evangelical churches. 
We received really sound biblical teaching, but we dared not tamper with the supernatural things of the Spirit, like healing and deliverance. We were afraid to allow Jesus on the boat. We feared that might in some way compromise the truth we'd been taught. Bring Jesus onto the boat? Are you joking? We might end up raising our hands in church or something. Graham Galt from our church and I were talking about this recently. You might know Graham. He's the principal of McGabry Primary. He was the guy who was all over the news recently for telling the select committee in the Commons that the parents had to bring toilet roll to school because they hadn't enough funding there these days. Graham wasn't feeling very well at one point last year and he came to the healing rooms at Emmanuel one weekend. And one of those people praying for him suddenly said, Graham, I just feel... I've got a really odd word for you. God wants to rescue you from drowning for a third time. It was so specific and it was a lightning bolt moment. Because when he'd been a child, Graham Galt was rescued from the sea and resuscitated on a beach, not once, but twice in his lifetime. So Graham really deeply values the teaching he grew up with. But he knew only God could have given that very specific word. Do you want to see heaven touching earth? Allow Jesus on the boat. He is both radical and conservative. So he's both man and God. He's both radical and conservative. And thirdly, he's both satisfying and disturbing. When the people find Jesus on the other side of the lake, they ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? Notice they don't ask, how did you get here? They're they're so caught up in the physical, they miss the spiritual. Because they're basically just hoping for another pop-up bakery that he's going to produce more bread. So he gives them a sermon on bread instead. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Really take time this week to read his whole sermon at the end of this chapter. And don't don't skip over the repetition because that's where you find Jesus' sermon points. Repeatedly Jesus stresses that he has come from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven. Verses 32, 33, 38, 41, 42, 46, 50, 51, 58. I think he wants us to get the message. He's come from heaven. He's not just a man. He pre-existed. And repeatedly he stresses that God sent him. I've come down from heaven to do the will of the Father. Verses 32, 33, 38, 39, 40, 57. See, we're so tempted to skip over it. Oh, I've already read that part. But there's a real purpose in the repetition. So God has come from heaven and become a man for a reason. To give us life. Eternal life. I am the bread of life, verse 35. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, verse 40. Your ancestors ate the manna and died, but if you eat this bread, you will not die, Verse 50, again and again and again. Verses 51, 54, 56, 58. Read it for yourself. Life, 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 life. And it's not the word bios, physical life. It's the word zeo, spiritual life. He's gone from offering one woman living water to quench her eternal thirst. To offering the world living bread to satisfy its eternal hunger. Eternal satisfaction. 
But he not only satisfies the disturbed, he disturbs the satisfied. When they ask for bread, and remember they're still thinking about physical bread, he tells them to come to him, to look to him, or behold in the older translations. That's much more than a glance. It's a lingering in his presence, a gazing on Jesus, a total devotion to him. Again, to put it simply, he says, come to me, sit with me, believe in me. And then he drops a bombshell in this Jewish synagogue and they are totally disturbed by the language he uses. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. These verses have been so misunderstood by the church through history. So let's just be clear. He isn't talking about his literal flesh and his literal blood. The Bible doesn't teach transubstantiation. The bread and wine at the Last Supper didn't turn into Jesus because Jesus was in the room with them. He's teaching them that the only way to have eternal life is to embrace who he is. The God who has come in human flesh to shed his own blood for their sins. Because Jesus is much more than a good person. He's the God who loves us enough to die for us. They couldn't even accept the first part. Isn't this the son of Joseph the carpenter, they ask? How could he be the son of God too? And they definitely couldn't accept the second part. That the Messiah, the hero of their story, was going to die. They were disturbed. So disturbed, some of them abandoned him. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They would never witness another miracle. If we want to see signs and wonders, we need to give Jesus our stuff. We need to let Jesus on the boat. And we need to acknowledge him in his entirety. The God who has come in human flesh to shed his own blood for our sins and to embrace him in that. We don't get away with just embracing the bits that appeal to us. We can't just have the man who's conservative and satisfying. We have to have the God who's radical and disturbing too. There are no half measures with Jesus. It's all or nothing. Billy Graham used to tell this great story about an archbishop he met at dinner. He asked the man when he'd become a Christian. The archbishop told him this great story. He said he'd gone to Chicago to speak at a theological college and had taken a bus tour of the city. He had just sat down on the bus when an elderly African-American woman tapped him on the shoulder from the seat behind and asked, Mr, has you been born again? Madam, he said, I am an archbishop. And I'm here to give a lecture at a theological college. When the bus came to a stop, the woman stood to get off. She turned to this proud religious man dressed in his flowing clerical robes and said, Mister, that ain't what I asked you. I asked, has you been born again? He smiled at her, but her words had pierced his soul. He went back to his hotel room, found a Gideon Bible in the drawer, opened the Gospel of John and surrendered his life to Jesus. If we want to see heaven touching earth, we need to acknowledge him in his entirety, 
not just the bits that appeal to us. He is both satisfying and disturbing. There's a, there's a really critical question at the end here. The people grumble and they can't accept what he's saying about himself. They're offended and many of them leave. Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? In other words, are you just in this for the bread and wine too? For the, for the healing and the teleporting through the rush hour traffic? That's a question for all of us. What are we in it for? Are, are we in it for the Jesus who makes us comfortable? Or the Jesus who takes us out of our comfort zones? By the end of John's gospel, the disciples will find themselves back on this same shoreline. Back eating bread and fish that Jesus has produced. Back being challenged about the extent of their commitment. Do you love me? Love me more than your family and friends? Do you love me? Love me more than your career, your status, your hopes and dreams. Do, do you love me? Love me more than your reputation, more than your comfort zone, more than your safe places? He asks those questions because the place of total fulfillment is the place of total surrender. The place of total fulfillment is the place of total surrender. One of the best sermons I ever heard preached was preached by Bishop Ken Clark, Fanta Clark. He was speaking to a group of students graduating from a Bible college in Dublin. He knew they would be applying for ministry um, opportunities all over the place and suggested that every interview for Christian ministry should only consist of one four-word question. Do you love me? Do you love me? It's hard to believe, I know, but we're well into November, nearing the end of another year. So, you know, the end of a year is a really good time to ask ourselves that question. Do we love him? Or do we want to walk away too? Peter answered him in verses 68 and 69. We'll be glad to see we're nearing the end now. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who else would we go to? It's a good question, Peter, but it's a rhetorical one because there's no answer to it. That's the whole point of John's Gospel. That we might discover who he is. That we might believe in who he is. That we might have life, eternal life in who he is. John has only begun to paint this picture of Jesus, you know. He goes on to talk about Jesus being the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life and the vine. He gives us seven miracles or signs and seven powerful statements to ensure we are left in no doubt about who Jesus is. Who else would we turn to? No one even comes close. To the person who's struggling to find a job or a home or a spouse or a family, or satisfaction of some kind, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Satisfaction. To the person who's struggling in the darkness, with divorce, or loneliness, or anxiety, or depression, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. To the person who's struggling with terminal illness, or grief, 
What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. It could go on and on. Whatever our problem is on any given day, Jesus is the solution. And whatever question the world is asking out there in this generation, my answer to Tim Keller is Jesus is the answer. Jesus is always the counter narrative. By the end of Revelation, John, this same John, will have completely shattered any illusion we have about keeping Jesus in a box. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, there from the beginning to the end. He's the root of David and the bright morning star from the earth to the heavens. He's the lion of Judah and the lamb who was slain. The only one able to pay the price, the only one able to take back the scroll. Jesus cannot be contained. He can't be confined. He can't be controlled. That's the Jesus we want to walk with every day. Earlier this year, Alan Emerson posted these words online. I have no confidence in Christian fundamentalism on the right or left-wing ideologies. I'm done with conversions on either side of the fence that fail to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus and the Pentecostal flames of the Spirit, which, if it's the real deal, will result in propelling the church into the streets to fulfil the Great Commission. He's not an either-or Jesus. He's a both-and Jesus. So what position should the church adopt? The posture of Jesus. Because Jesus is both man and God. Jesus is both radical and conservative. Jesus is both satisfying and disturbing. Is that the Jesus we're following? That's the only Jesus worth following. The Jesus not confined to a box. Back in the horrible days when African slaves were being transported across the nations, across the oceans, they would sing spiritual songs. We don't know who wrote the music. We don't know who wrote the words. But one of them goes like this. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. You know, sometimes we overthink how we are to engage with people. Let's not overthink it anymore. Let's just, in Tandragee, in Portadown, in Lurgan, in Craigavon, in Armagh, give them Jesus. Because Jesus will always be more than enough. Let's pray together. In the morning when we rise, give us Jesus. When we are alone, give us Jesus. When we come to die, give us Jesus. Father, we are so thankful this morning for Jesus. We are so thankful that you left heaven and took on human flesh so that you might pay the price for our sins. So that we 
might be at one with God and have life. Father, this morning, would you just forgive us for the times when we inadvertently confine you to boxes and help us to have the courage to think outside the box. To see you for who you are in every aspect. And to desire heaven to touch earth to such an extent that we don't hold on to our stuff. That we let you on the boat. That we embrace you completely in every dimension. Open our hearts and minds to that Jesus today. And thank you that we don't even have to do that on our own because you didn't abandon us. You sent another comforter, another counsellor, your Holy Spirit, and we so welcome his presence in this place. And we pray for a greater sensitivity to it. A greater sensitivity to what he wants to do in us and through us. So thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.